So the, the full title of the book is the, uh, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, which says to me, and Tim, you've seen this in, in the book, that if I've read this last book of the Bible faithfully, I will be more in love with Jesus Christ. I'll be preoccupied with him. I'll see everything through him. If I'm preoccupied with something else, I didn't read it correctly. Um, it's all about him. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. I am so thrilled to share a very special conversation with you today. Now, if you're listening for the first time, my name is Jason. I'm a pastor here in Vancouver, Canada, and I'm part of the leadership team at Alpha Canada. And about a year ago, along with a few other pastors and friends, we launched the Canadian Church Leaders Network. It's an organization dedicated to serving pastors in Canada and beyond. And part of our mission is expressed through this podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation with other church leaders from around the world, and we explore themes that relate to the -the on-the-ground, day-to-day life of pastoring and leading churches in this place and in this time. And today is a unique departure from our typical format. Today we get to listen to a conversation on a specific book of the Bible that was hosted by two of our past guests on the show. Tim Hughes, he's going to lead this conversation. You might know him through some of the worship songs that he's written over the years or from one of our previous episodes on the podcast earlier this season. A couple months ago, he sat down with our friend, our dear friend, Daryl Johnson, to discuss the book of Revelation. And if you didn't already know it, Daryl wrote a series of sermon on Revelation that were compiled into a book that I try to read as often as possible. I try to read it annually called Discipleship on the Edge. It's a very helpful read, and we link to it in the blog for this episode. But Tim and Daryl's conversation explores a variety of themes from the book of Revelation and really unpacks how to understand and read apocalyptic literature like the book of Revelation. And here's why we're sharing it today. We feel that this book of the Bible is particularly relevant for life in this time and ministry and making disciples in this time. One more thing before we jump into the conversation. I want to share a little bit about Tim Hughes and the organization he leads called the Worship Central. Now, he's a pastor of Gas Street Church in Birmingham, but he also leads Worship Central. And Worship Central started with the simple hope of equipping the worshipers and empowering local church leaders to lead people into profound encounters with God through worship music. And over the years, it's grown into a global movement and it's really developing helpful resources and training opportunities for modern day worship leaders. And my experience with Worship Central has been incredibly positive. Some of the most incredible, sensitive worship leaders I know have gone through their academy and their training and connected with their conferences and events. And so I wanted you to know about it. So if you're a senior pastor thinking about how to further empower worship leaders in your church, or if you're a worship leader yourself, I highly encourage you to check out Worship Central. You can find everything you need at worshipcentral.org, or if you're here in Canada, at worshipcentral.ca. Okay, with all that said, let's jump into the conversation on the book Revelation with Tim and Daryl. Well, it is so good to be here, joined by Daryl Johnson. I'm in Birmingham, UK. Daryl is in Vancouver, Canada. Great to see you, Daryl. Daryl, um, the reason I wanted to sort of connect with you is at the start of uh, lockdown in the UK, I, I started studying Revelation and I used your um, book, the, uh, Discipleship on the Edge, <clears throat> as like a kind of concordance to sort of guide me through my studies. And completely completely came alive to me uh it's not often this happens but it was almost like you know the most amazing netflix uh box set that each morning i'd wake up i'd read a chapter i'd study that passage it just brought so much to life and there was so much in it that really um inspired me particularly around the area of worship and leading worship a lot you know that's obviously something i'm passionate about uh, but I just thought, actually, there's so much here that um, people connected with Worship Central and our church, Gastry, and others, I think, could be really inspired by. So I want to thank you for writing this amazing book. But maybe just to kick us in, it's interesting reading it from the context of lockdown. John obviously was in exile. What, what were some of those similarities, perhaps, to John's writing to what we're experiencing with COVID-19 currently globally? Oh, very good. First of all, it's just really great to be with you, Tim. Um, over the last few years, you've been one of the great blessings. Um, I, I regularly, regularly in my gratitudes, I list the Lord. You brought Tim Hughes into my life, oh, thank and um, I'm I'm just so grateful. You know, I was supposed to be at Gas Street Church. I know May. that was the plan, and I I hope that that can work out, and I can visit you there and and see what God is doing with you. 
Um, how does this all relate to what we're experiencing with this uh, forced isolation? Um, well, actually, I'd like to put it in a bigger perspective. Over the last weeks, I've been reflecting on the fact that there are a number of forced isolation experiences in Scripture. Uh, you have David uh, in a cave, uh, in and out of caves, actually. <laughs> and then you have Paul uh, in jail and in and out of jail. And then you have um, uh, John on Patmos. And um, I've been thinking, you know, what are the common denominators to those forced isolation experiences? And, and they are three. One is uh, they all discover that they're not alone in forced isolation. In the cave, Yahweh shows up. In jail, the Lord is near, Paul says. And on Patmos, Jesus shows up big time. Also, in each of those contexts, uh, they discover where they're truly living in the universe. David in the cave recognizes that Yahweh is his fortress, his home, his dwelling place. Paul in jail um, he discovers, well, he probably knew, but it came home that his true home is in Christ, in the heavenly places, as he says in Ephesians. And then John discovers on the island of Patmos that his true home, again, is in Jesus um, and in this new city that is coming, but is really close at hand. So there's a sense in which John even is transported into this new city. And then the, the third common denominator in all three of those is that in each of them, the spirit gives great creativity. Mm. Just think of the Psalms that came out of the cave. And then think of these epistles that came out of jail. And then think of this great apocalypse that comes out of the island of Patmos. So the encouragement to us is in whatever form of forced isolation we have to live, we're not alone. Yeah. And we're actually going to discover where we truly live not in our condos or our apartments or our nice homes, but in Christ, in the heavenly places. And I think we're going to experience new creativity. I'd like to think that particularly in your ministry, people you work with, some new kinds of songs are going to emerge out of this place. Um, because the Spirit loves to bring this creativity when we actually stop our normal routines and are forced to be still. So, um, now, the last book of the Bible, then, it, of course, is the, the, the biggest <laughs> expression of this creativity, this massively uh, creative work that emerges from the prison island. Um, this book, actually, the, the, the feel of the book actually came alive for me in 1984. I don't know if I mentioned this in my book. In 1984, I'm flying from Los Angeles to Seoul to attend uh, the first ever International Prayer Assembly. It was a two-week uh, gathering to pray at Yangnok Presbyterian Church in Seoul. I think we had like 4,000 delegates from around the world. It was sponsored by the Luzon Committee on World Evangelization. So my heart is just alive to come and pray with these people and worship with these people from all over the world. Late at night on the plane, I I'm reading Revelation because it was my sequence of reading, not because I was particularly interested. And I'm reading through Revelation 4 and 5. And I just had this moment when the, the cabin was dark, people were asleep. And for an instant, it felt as though that plane filled with light as I was reading Revelation 4 and 5. Whether it did or not, I don't know. I, that's an experience I'm still processing. You can tell. Uh, but there was this sense that um, there was all this light in the darkness. And that's when this image of um, things are not as they seem mm. came to me. Mm. That on that airplane, cabin dark, there is a presence. Um, and if he were to manifest his presence, um, it would just undo us. I, I, it, I don't know how long it lasted, but I wanted to wake everybody up and say, we have to sing all hail the power of Jesus name, you know, let angels prostrate fall. Uh, so that's when um, emotionally uh, I started connecting with the book and then, then started reading and researching and working with that. Uh, we talked about maybe commenting on the title of my book on the last book of the Bible. I wanted to call it Things Are Not As They Seem. But at that time, the publisher thought, hmm, sounds a little new agey, so we probably ought to not use it. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I had to come up with a new title. And it, the new title came uh, immediately to mind was Discipleship on the Edge. 
And I think that does, in fact, explain what that last book is all about. Well, that, that was one of the big helpful takeaway points, because I think sometimes people can feel a bit intimidated by Revelation. We all know it's been sort of wildly misinterpreted and used yes. to explain a whole bunch of weird things. Um, and it's confusing. The imagery is bewildering. It's something we can't quite tangibly grasp some of it. But actually to see it in the light of this is a discipleship book to help me understand more of who Jesus is and how to live and follow him. That was so helpful. I mean, one of the things you say at one point uh, is that the revelation calls us to radical discipleship, to all out courageous loyalty to the lamb in a world feverishly worshipping the beast. Maybe unpack a bit why, why again, you, you think this book is so helpful for us as disciples of Jesus. Okay. Um, I would put the, this book in uh, the same category as Matthew and Ephesians. I think Matthew is a discipleship manual, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ephesians is, is also, and then this one, uh, teaching us what it means to be a disciple. And I've got a diagram. Um, yeah. I'm not real techie, so I, I've got it in the old-fashioned way. I'll just bring it out here. Uh, and maybe you have seen this. Have you seen this, this diagram before, Tim? Yeah. Um, and, and it's used when, in teaching biblical theology. You've got um, God beginning with creation and then sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all falls. <laughs> and so that's a picture of, of our fall. But then even in the fall, God begins what's called salvation history. And it's moving in a straight line. History isn't cyclical. It's not going around and around and around. It's moving somewhere. And it's moving to this great day of the Lord. And the thought is on that great day of the Lord, God will intervene. And then we move into a new heaven and a new earth. We move into the kingdom of God. So for Old Testament prophets, the longing was for this great day when we would experience the kingdom. And and what the gospel of Jesus is, and and. This cross represents not his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, the whole thing. Somewhere between the fall and the end of time, Jesus Christ comes. And in his coming, the future spills into the present and heaven invades earth. That, I think, is Jesus' gospel. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, turn around, and put your weight on this gospel. Heaven is invading earth. And the future is spilling into the present. Now, um, discipleship on the edge, then, I'm using in three ways. One is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus when we're living on this edge of the final inbreaking of the kingdom? Which we are. We don't know when he's coming. Um, It's near, he says. And so we're always supposed to be living in this state of anticipation. It's always near. So what does it mean to live with a sense that it's always near? Then secondly, what does it mean to live in this space where you've got the kingdom of heaven breaking, coming up against all the other kingdoms in the world? This tension that that the coming of Jesus creates. You know, his coming into the world brings blessing, but it brings tension because he comes up against everything that is out of sync with his kingdom. And so we live in this tension. And the word that John uses is tribulation. Uh, tribulation doesn't mean just trouble. It, it refers to this crushing pressure that you experience when two kingdoms collide. And there's a lot of colliding of kingdoms in here. So what does it mean to follow Jesus in this space? And then a third reason for discipleship on the edge is in Revelation 1 and 19, we have a picture of Jesus in a human form. And the common denominator is a sword coming out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. And so what does it mean then to follow Jesus when he's got this sword coming out of his mouth speaking to you? And what he's speaking, and we see this in the seven messages in chapters two to three, the fundamental thing he's speaking is it's either or. It's either me or the dragon. It's either the city of God or the city of rebellious man. It's either um, Babylon or Jerusalem is either the harlot or the bride. And oh my goodness, more than Matthew, more than Ephesians, uh, Revelation just focuses that issue. I, I, you, you can probably sense it in me. When I read Revelation, I go, oh, this is awfully sharp. Yeah. Does it have to be this either or? <laughs> can we have a little room for wiggle in here? And uh, the answer is, uh, I know. 
no, uh, either I'm the Lord and we either do it my way or it collapses. <laughs> Take your pick. Um, so I, I, I'm putting it in really stark terms because that's what the last book of the Bible does. Um, and that's what I mean by discipleship on the edge. What does it mean to follow him when he makes the issues so clear yeah. uh, and, um, and, and so demanding? So good. And, and just for a moment, just talk a bit about this, you know, the revelation, the pulling back of the curtains, the revealing of Jesus. What, what is significant about that? You know, I'm thinking, you know, John exiled on Patmos uh, in his mid 80s. The church is being persecuted, a lot of suffering. And, you know, the, the kind of Hollywood movie story would be that John sort of is rescued off the island. He's placed yeah. back with all the church and the people he loves and gets to live out the last days, you know, of his life happy. But no, actually, in the midst of real pain and suffering, the curtain is te- teared back and he sees Jesus in all his glory. And it's almost like it's enough. But we just talk about and this kind of phrase, apocalypse. Yeah, good. Well, the title of the book um, is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, And that word revelation is technically the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And as you've already hinted, uh, when people in our time hear this word apocalypse or apocalyptic, there's this fear note that arises. (laughs) You hear the word apocalypse and you think, "Uh uh-oh, something really bad is going to happen. So, for instance, I was watching BBC. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and the the cameraman was panning the streets of London and he goes, boy, this is apocalyptic. Yeah. And I thought, I know what he means, but the word he should use is this is terrifying or this is catastrophic or this is something like that. Mm. But apocalypse, no, not necessarily. The first century person hears this word apocalypse and they go, oh, wow. Bring it on, <laughs> because simply uh, apocalypse means the, as you've already hinted, opening up of a curtain mm. or lifting up of a cover off of a box um, or opening a door. Hence, chapter four, verse one, I saw a door open um, and and, and the, the curtain is pulled back to reveal what has always been there but we didn't recognize because the, because the curtain was closed. So I've got this closet next to me um, and, and I, I just open that up or I, you can't see that, but I open that door. That's an apocalypse. Yeah. And, and by the way, my closet's really nice and organized, so I don't mind showing it, but anyway, <laughs> um, so, so John is on the island of Patmos and Jesus gives him an apocalypse. Jesus pulls back the curtain so that John can see what he otherwise would not be able to see. That's the key thing. Uh, you, uh, apocalyptic literature, like Daniel and like Revelation, is all about seeing something you could have never figured out on your own. Mm-hmm. You could have never deduced any of this. So when you and I, our contemporaries, look out at the world now, you wouldn't deduce that the world's being run by a crucified king. You just wouldn't figure that out. You wouldn't deduce that even in our suffering, we're being loved in a way that we never imagined. So it requires an apocalypse to do that. By the way, the Apostle Paul uses this language. In Galatians 1, he says he came to faith as a result of an apocalypse. Jesus opened the curtain and he saw Jesus. He says that his gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, for in it, the righteousness of God is apocalypse, is opened up. I would, It's Paul's way of saying, I would have never, ever figured out the meaning of the cross without him pulling it back. So John is on, on the Patmos, and Jesus gives him this experience, huge experience. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what this was. Mm. whereby he pulls back and shows something John would have not seen. Now, here's the important thing. I think it's really critical that when we're reading this last book of the Bible, we keep the title clear. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, of in what sense? By him or about him? Yes. (laughs) Both by him and about him. So the the full title of the book is the... uh, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. The 
unveiling of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, which says to me, and Tim, you've seen this in, in the book, that if I've read this last book of the Bible faithfully, I will be more in love with Jesus Christ. I'll be preoccupied with him. I'll see everything through him. If I'm preoccupied with something else, I didn't read it correctly. Mm. Um, it's all about him. Uh, and his call then to radical uh, discipleship. Yeah. And, and a key word uh, that comes through the book is um, some translations have behold or look. But yeah. I, again, I thought that was interesting. <clears throat> and just thinking about, you know, for us today as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we keep posturing ourselves in that position to keep looking, to keep beholding? Because we can get very familiar with Jesus. We get very busy, distracted. <laughs> what have you learned about just posturing your heart to keep beholding so that you keep growing in this deep love and affection towards this incredible savior? Very good. Well, you're, what you're referring to is the dominant command of the book. There are two commands. And, and one of the things in, when we're studying scripture is to, is to look at the exhortations of a document because mm-hmm. uh, the exhortations are going to reveal the passion of the, of the writer. And the two commands are look, behold, and then do not be afraid. Yeah. And I think John as a pastor is saying, if you look, you will not be afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I think you would also say you're afraid because you're looking the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> it's because you're looking at the things that are causing you anxiety that you're so fearful. But you, you need to switch and look at what's being opened up to us. And so John says, behold, I don't know how many times I've, I, I don't know how many, uh, well over 30 times. Right. Um, so when you're reading the book, by the way, make sure you get a version that kept, keeps the behold. <laughs> Some translations just see that's kind of a nice little literary device. It's not. It's a command. Look. And every time John uses that word, look, it's a surprise. You would have never figured it out. Yeah. Behold, I'm coming. Behold, the, the lamb one, not the lion. Mm-hmm. Behold, <laughs> you know, on and on and on it goes. So your practical question, then how do we keep alive to that? my answer, I, I don't, I don't want it to be pious. Mm. Um, I don't want it to be simplistic, but I think there's only one way. Mm. Yeah. And that's to be, to, to soak in the word. And I, and I think that this gesture in the morning, this very gesture of doing this is a way of recognizing that this curtain is being opened. This mm. door is being opened. The cover is being lifted. Mm. And, when it is, um, in some way, Jesus Christ will emerge from there. Tim, I think that's the only way I know how, um, is I've got to keep opening the book. Um, I turn on the TV. That's, that's an act mm. of looking. Mm. So I know how to do that. <laughs> or I turn on the, what, the news on, on the computer. So I've also got to turn on this other news where I now have an alternative vision an alternative perspective. And this book will always lead me no matter what book I'm reading in the direction of Jesus. So I, again, I, I don't mean to, I don't want to sound pious, <laughs> uh, you know, simply Bible. <laughs> but it does come back to, I guess the choices thing we're saying at the, you were saying at the start, you know, we were presented with a choice where we're going to look for, feeding and influencing and 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 so i think that's really right and i think our worship is uh, there's a church of england liturgy which says it is our duty and our joy at all times and all places you know to worship and that of course worship is our great joy to understand god's love to be welcomed in his arms and receive his healing and peace and but there's also that duty of making time you know reading the word praying coming before him like in in a marriage there's a duty of commitment but also the great joy of intimacy and yeah. friendship yeah can, can, can i ask um so revelation four and five you suddenly like this unbelievable <laughs> dramatic kind of insight into the worship of heaven which is like wow what are we going to be spending eternity doing and, and it's this kind of amazing picture living creatures 
angels, you know, elders, um, heavens and earth, you know, just worshipping the throne. But I've heard you talk about this amazing moment where you see in Revelation 4, I think it's the living creatures. Um, um, it says in the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and back. Um, and he describes them. Each of the four living creatures had six wings covered with eyes. Um, just this idea of seeing incredibly. But then in Isaiah 6, where we see this another kind of incredible God encounter, we see these kind of living creatures, but this time the wings are, are covering their eyes. Why in Isaiah do we see kind of eyes being covered in this? I know obviously in the Old Testament idea that if you were to see God, you'd die because it's so overwhelmingly glorious and incomprehensible to kind of, but here they're seeing, they're right up close and they're seeing, there's no need to cover their, their eyes. What, 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 why is that? Oh, very- a very good question. It's it, it's twice there. In fact, that this is the first time I realize it's twice. Mm. It's in chapter four, verse six, mm-hmm. full of eyes in front and behind, yeah. and then in chap in verse eight, are full of eyes around and within, day and night, that they do not cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy." Mm. Well, my best take on that is that in Isaiah six. Uh, Isaiah is, uh, the creatures and Isaiah are overwhelmed by the holiness of God. Yes, because it's so beautiful and so awesome, but because of the awareness of their sin. Yeah. So that in Isaiah 6, the next scene is then the, the angels come with the, the coal, put it on his lips, and, the, and he's, declared, uh, he's declared forgiven. Um, so it's because of the sin of the creatures and the sin of humanity that they cover their eyes. In Revelation 4, their eyes are open, which says to me, something must have happened about sin. Mm. Uh, so that sin is not the problem that it was before in having intimacy with God. Mm. And then we read chapter 5, and of course we discover it's because the lamb was slain. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world is slain. And because the lamb now is in the picture things change. In fact, I like to point out in chapter five, verse um, uh, uh, six, it's literally, I saw in the middle of the throne with the four living creatures uh, and the elders, a lamb standing at the slain. Mm -hmm. So he's right in the middle of the one who's on the throne. The one who's on the throne is awesomely holy so the picture that John wants us to have is that in the midst of all that holiness is this lamb who's taken away our sin, enabling us to move into that space of holiness and in some sense still see it. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's what's changed, is that God has done something about our sin. The holiness of God is still massive and overwhelming. Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Uh, I've been meditating on that, that a lot lately. God is bigger than any of us realize. He's more pure and more more beautiful and more awesome. So we're still going to have that sense of, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? <laughs> but we don't have to be afraid to be here. Yeah. And we don't, so we don't have to cover our eyes. There's that great hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Um, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. I understand why the writer put that there, but I think that's Isaiah 6. I don't know that you can say that same phrase in light of Isaiah, uh, Revelation 5. Mm. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. No, I think that because of the blood of Christ, these sinful eyes get to behold a measure of his glory. And I think that's what's going on then. Uh, all these creatures and then all these voices and every created thing in heaven and on earth is crying out worthy as the lamb. Yeah. It's the, the incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's the power of the, the gospel that, because I think a lot of people can feel real shame, you know, particularly yeah. people who um new to church. But I think generally shame is such a, a profound thing, but actually when you, read this and you realize because of the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice, we can stand and be a part of this unbelievable view 
And we can be bold and confident, not because of our behavior, but because of Jesus' redeeming love. And I, I just, again, it awakens worship, the power of God's mercy and re- redemption. Hey, we're going to jump back into this conversation in just a second. But before we do, I want to share some exciting news from our friends at Briarcrest College and Seminary. Briarcrest will be returning to campus this fall in person. In light of the pandemic, perhaps you or someone you know thought that your education plans would need to be put on hold, but that does not need to be the case. As you look into this next year, Briarcrest could be the school that you're looking for. Their courses are highly transferable to other Canadian universities. The community there is heavily focused on discipleship, and they've got a world-class faculty geared towards shaping deep, passionate Christ followers. And here's been my experience. Every time I visit Briarcrest, I see the value that they bring to the lives of real people who want to make an impact for the kingdom of God in their world. And so if you or someone you know is looking to explore a Christian post-secondary education, why not point them to Briarcrest to find out more? You can check out their return to campus ebook and webinar dates at briarcrestcollege.ca slash return. Okay, let's jump back into today's conversation. I'd love to ask one of the things um, when you're looking at this incredible insight into the throne room and, and, and the surprise, the kind of sucker punch, as it were, is you, you expect, you know, the, the lion and the, the greatness and everyone bowing down, elders, 24 elders casting their crowns before the throne. But, but then you see at the centre of the throne a lamb <laughs> looking as if it had been slain. And it's this... Um, you know, this idea it, it, uh, talks about a lamb with um, seven horns, which horns symbolize strength and seven, this number of com- completion and perfection. Um, you know, so this lamb that was completely strong, perfectly strong, eye, seven eyes, perfectly wise. So it's not like this lamb's weak and kind of been overpowered. The lamb has laid down his life. And this idea of sacrifice jesus dying on the cross for us but but that that theme i think of of sacrifice um that really sort of jumped out at me through this book and i guess our response as followers of jesus christ surely must involve choosing to lay our lives down for jesus but also for others and i'm thinking in a time of you know covid19 the global pandemic where there's so much suffering one of the first responses of the church has to be sacrificial love um, and you, you have this brilliant phrase at the center of reality is one who suffers just i'd love you just to unpack a bit more about this incredible reality and what 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 would have that meant for, for john and you know the disciples at the time waiting for this great victorious messiah and you see this picture of sacrifice yeah that's a really good question um let me step back just a bit and make a comment I think it was Eugene Peterson said that in Revelation, I don't learn anything brand new. I already learned it in the other 65 books of the Bible. It's just that in the last book of the Bible, I learn it in a new way, namely in the way of imagery. So instead of just prose or even poetry, now it becomes visual imagery. And this thing, this section about the lamb slain and being immensely strong and immensely wise is already developed in the Gospel of John. Right from the beginning of John, he says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think John then uh, works the rest of his book through on Glory. So the first sign that Jesus does, he turns water into wine, and we beheld his glory. Mm. And it builds up to Lazarus being resuscitated. It did not say that if you believe, you see the glory of God. Building up to chapter 12, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and says, Now the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I think that's. John's way of showing that we were anticipating this blaze of glory when he said we beheld his glory. But it's always been focusing down to this moment when he, Jesus lays his life down like a, like a seed in the ground 
and dies. And I think that's John's way of saying in, in prose that the glory of God is finally manifested in God giving his life for the world. Mm-hmm. That, that, that is glory. So God is reinterpreting glory for us. We humans think of glory in these um, egotistical uh, ways, and, but God doesn't think of them those ways. God's glory is giving his life for the life of the world, giving himself away. That's what Paul develops in his hymn in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. So what John is showing here, in the, in, what Jesus is showing through this picture form is the lamb is not weak. Hmm. When he gives his life away, he's not a wimp. Mm. It takes great strength to give your life away. And the lamb's not stupid. Mm. It's not a stupid thing to be sacrificial. Um, so that what's being revealed here, and the phrase you wanted me to talk about, suffering at the heart of the universe, um, I, I probably should have nuanced that a little bit, or sacrificial love is at the center of the universe and, and that love will suffer. So that the, the more I press into the heart of the true God who is, holds the universe together, the more I discover that glory is finally manifested in giving our lives away. There is no other way to live gloriously. So if I want to participate in the glory of God, <laughs> it's only one way. Wow. That's, I mean, that is amazing, isn't it? Right? Right. I'm not being stupid Hmm. when I give money to the food bank. I'm not being stupid when I spend time reaching out to the widow in my building who has nobody to look after her. I'm not being, I'm not being stupid. And I'm not being weak. This is powerful stuff. Hmm. And, and then the rest of the book shows how the, the world is run by this, this whole orientation of the downward movement of this glorious movement where I as a human being now get to discover what it means to be, to participate in God's glory. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what he's saying. And, that, and that's at the heart of the universe and will be forever. <clears throat> yeah, well, um, just to sort of maybe wrap it around a couple of things to finish one again, maybe from this angle of, of worship and our relationship and connection with Jesus Christ, interested in how, heaven and earth connect they're not just this kind of like well there's a couple of moments one i I was just trying to find it but we're the harp and the bowls and it's the incense the prayers of our saints kind of wafting up in heaven and just of our prayers creating this beautiful fragrance before god you know now and and then this bit in 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 um uh revelation 8 where they're opening up the the seals and when they open up the uh seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about an hour um for half an hour and again this picture of with these breaking open these seals again insights into what is to come um prayer is right at the heart of it and how prayer is you say history is moved by many forces but one of the greatest forces is prayer And, and just maybe talk about that silence in heaven for half an hour and you know maybe is it who knows but sort of god just desperately wanting to listen in to the prayers of his his people um yeah just i'd love to hear any insights and in how heaven and earth interconnect you ask good questions tim <laughs> and I, I i sense where you're struggling too because you're I, I i sense you're going to write some songs about this and enable worship <laughs> to take place and, yeah. and go for it i'll keep praying for you yeah. Um, boy, that's, that's a good question. I'm going to back up just a bit. Um, in chapter um, 5, verse 1, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll mm. written inside and back, sealed up with seven seals. So right from the beginning, the, the scroll is going to be centered. And I take the scroll to mean the meaning of history. Mm. And, of course, then he laments who can who who's worthy to open the scroll? So Andrew Peterson's song, you know, is he worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Um, and then discovers that it's not not Jesus Christ as a lion, but Jesus Christ as a lamb gets to open the scroll. The, the scroll of history is going to be opened up by sacrificial love. Now, in chapter six, seven, and eight, then you got seven seals that are broken on the scroll, and in each seal somebody prays. 
That's the key. Mm. That's the key of history in each seal. So you've got in the first seal, come. Mm. Second, come. Third, come. Fourth, come. Fifth, the saints who are already in heaven. How long, O Lord? Mm. The sixth, the, the, those who don't want anything to do with the Lamb are called, they're praying to the mountains <laughs> to come and, and, and cover them and protect them. And then finally, uh, the seventh seal, um, the, the silence of heaven for a half hour and all the prayers of the saints are accumulating. I think that the idea behind that 30-minute wait, I think it's God's way of saying, see, it's, this is what it's all been about. My people have been praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, 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 and now it, this inertia of prayer is just finally being brought to its con- conclusion. Um, and, and that's the secret uh, behind the flow of history. So I think that's what's being communicated in that, which is very humbling. Um, we're talking about the heroes, you know, right now, that's the frontline workers and, and, and they are, um, but throughout the century, the heroes have been those who have, who have prayed. And most of them have probably been grandmothers. Um, and I have this vision, I don't know if I write this in the book, this picture at the end of history, there's going to be this great parade and, and all the world leaders are going to come and we're going to give our applause, you know, um, and we're going to give our, our waves <laughs> and then the sports heroes and everybody, I'm not putting anybody down. And then there's those pastors and their professors and all of that. And at the end, there are going to be all these grandmothers and the whole universe is going to stand up and say, it was you, wasn't it? It was you stuck in your forced isolation, many of them. Yeah. Made the world go around because you prayed. And I think that's what the picture is then, is that intercessory prayer along with sacrificial love. Oh, those go together, don't they? You won't, I won't do intercession unless I recognize this is an act of love. This is probably my, oh, this is really good. This is probably my great act of sacrifice right now to give time to yeah. intercessory prayer. Well, I, I think that's been one of the really encouraging things for our church at this time. And for me personally, just an awakened sense of the need and the importance of prayer that actually, you know, we can't all necessarily leave our homes and get out there and do it, but actually believing that in prayer, we, we can make such an impact that actually we're, we're, we're equipped and empowered and, and actually, um, I guess certainly one of my hopes for my life and, and for the church is we've worked very hard to try and make a difference. Um, and maybe it's a, a kind of realigning. Actually, if we prayed more and did a bit less. Would the doing a bit less end up being incredibly more effective than just crazy activity and then a quick prayer at the beginning, at the end of a gathered meeting. So I, I think, again, this for me was like, wow, the importance, the profound impact prayer and worship has. Um, maybe just as we, we, we close, Daryl, um, at the end, there's this amazing kind of picture of, um, you know, the marriage feast, you know, bride and, and, and the bridegroom coming, coming together, the sort of the church <clears throat> being uh, kind of united to Christ. And um, one of the things is this beautiful thing around intimacy this kind of coming uh together and um you you link and i've not seen this before about how historically like a, a wedding you know the kind of the ceremonies and symbolism and, and how when jesus is at the last supper you know the passover meal there's so much he, he's kind of doing and saying that actually i'm now you know uniting myself with the church with the people of god with you and me uh in this incredibly intimate relationship um and i know intimacy is something we can find a bit hard to kind of understand particularly when we think about our relationship with jesus i think we can recognize and appreciate respecting and honoring god's greatness but actually the real power is that we can be we can experience this incredible radical love that heals us that transforms us and Again, I'd love you just to pick up a bit about why is it so significant, this picture of the marriage feast, and how can we grow in our intimacy with Jesus, and how can that fuel our worship? Oh, boy. 
host of really good questions. And we, <laughs> yes, and we, we have we have another hour. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of of the book of the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, this is a major theme. Um, in chapters two and three, Jesus speaks seven messages to the seven churches. Mm. And what's interesting is that's put together in a literary device called a chiasm, which goes like this. And um, in a chiasm, you look at the first, last, and middle. Mm. In the first letter, the letter to the Ephesians, he says, you've lost your first love. Mm. In the last letter, he's uh, to, to um, Laodicea, he's knocking on the door. That's an awful picture. Christ is on the outside of the church, yeah. knocking on the door. Um, and, and the language is, behold, I, I stand at the door and knock. That's a quote from the Song of Solomon, mm. chapter 5, verse 6, mm. where the lover is knocking at the door mm. for his beloved. Mm. And then, so, so the first letter is, you've lost your first love. The last letter is, I'm appealing to you as a lover knocking at the door. And then the middle letter is to Thyatira, where Jesus uses the awful word adultery. Mm. Um, that the church has bought into this compromise arrangement uh, re uh, represented in this person, Jezebel. So the, 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 the first two chapters, uh, the chapters two and three, um, have the seven messages that are forming this idea. You've lost your love. I'm appealing to your love. And losing your love is moving in the way of adultery. Then the rest of the book then is going to wrestle with the picture of these two cities, mm. the Babylon and Jerusalem and Babylon horribly it's called the harlot mm -hmm. and Jerusalem the bride mm -hmm. so that the, the the whole thrust of this discipleship on the edge again is going to be who do you love yeah with whom will you be intimate will it be the world system mm -hmm. that is all about power and getting and greed and lust demanding having your own way or is it going to be about the new Jerusalem, mm. which is going to embody this sacrificial love. Um, so, uh, so it is a, it's one long love letter. I mm. wish I had the time to, to even draw yeah. that out. One long love letter where Jesus is appealing. I want to love you in um, such a way that the best analogy I can come up with is that of marriage. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, guys will bristle. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, bristle, but let it, let Jesus press it mm. and tell you, I don't know any other way to say how much tenderness and attentiveness um, I want you to experience than their love relationship. Mm. Um, you know, I'm I'm a grandfather, uh, so I know what it's like to my love my children, mm. and I love my grandchildren in a whole different way but uh, nothing like the way I love my wife. Mm. And so Jesus is saying to, to us, you, you're, you're, my, you're my brothers and sisters. You're part of my family. Oh, man, do I love you? Oh, man, I love you. Yeah. But I, I'm telling you, it actually goes deeper. Mm. Uh, so don't be scandalized by the image. Yeah. Let me press in and help you know that this is really deep stuff. Yeah, that's what the love and that's the love I'm evoking from you toward me. Mm. That's the best I can do with that. No, it's brilliant. Well, well Dara, as I say, I mean, there's, I got so many other questions and thought like pages that I wanted to go through, but that was so helpful. I mean, one thing to anyone watching, firstly, get the book, Discipleship on the Edge, an expository journey through the book of Revelation absolutely amazing and as i said I, th I think anyone involved in leading worship uh being part of a worship team i think it's just you have to read it because it will awaken fresh love um but also i just think for the whole church in this we're, we're living i think this is what struck me as well and then i'm going to ask you to quickly pray for us is is i think for so many in the church we're sort of we're naive and we sort of sleepwalk through life failing to recognize that there are so many powers and principles, you know, so much that is shaping us. The media, every time we're on Instagram, there's a message that's being, you know, and these are expert people who've got billions of dollars to try and kind of grab hold of our emotions and impact the way we spend our money and spend our time. 
And if we, if we want to allow God to shape us, to bring about this joy and this peace uh, and to sort of pursue this life in all its fullness, there's an intentionality we, we need to, to bring to this. And it's spending time with him. It's recognizing who he is. And it's, it's digging into some of these scriptures, which are so powerful. So I, I, I just thought it kind of awakened this, as you said, the sharp edge of it's Jesus or the world. And uh, we've got to take this stuff very, very seriously. But actually, when we allow ourselves to be shaped by Jesus, what an amazing adventure we're a part of. This incredible cosmic battle. And we're going to rule and reign with him fraternity and enjoy this intimacy so thank you for bringing so much of this alive to me and i know it'll have brought life to so many other people but could you maybe just close by praying for us uh yeah just whatever you're feeling led to pray jesus it's with great joy that this that today we confess you to be our lord our savior and the lover of our souls. I thank you for this book that you inspired for the Apostle John in Forced Isolation, whereby you call us to radical trust, radical obedience, and radical intimacy. Maybe radical and intimacy don't go together in the same way, but to this deep, deep, peace-giving, shame-removing, guilt-lifting, service-empowering love. I thank you that through this book, we're told that this is actually the way the world is run. And so we would ask in this day and the days to come, you would help us enter into this deeper intimacy and deeper way of glory. And we long for that day when chapters 21 and 22 will be realized, where there is no more disease, there are no more cry, no more tears, where death itself is removed. And you are given all the credit that you deserve. We bless you. Amen. Amen. Daryl, thank you so much. Amazing. <laughs> really pleased. It's always good to be with you. <laughs> well, I want to say a huge thank you to Tim and Daryl for sharing this conversation with us today. And if you love hearing from Daryl as much as I do, I want to point you to two projects of his. First, I want to recommend his book on the last book of the Bible called Discipleship on the Edge. You can just head to our blog for this episode on cclnca slash blog, and you'll find a bit more about his books and those other projects and links of where to buy it. And second, I want to recommend that you subscribe to the Daryl Johnson podcast. Every week on the podcast, our team is releasing sermons from Daryl. And as a Bible teacher myself, I find listening to his sermons incredibly helpful and useful, and it's fueling my own content development as a pastor. Lastly, as usual, if you enjoyed this episode or any others before it, it would go a long way for our team and for others if you would share it with a friend or someone you think would benefit from these conversations. And if you haven't already, please give this podcast a subscribe or a review on whatever app you're on. And if you've got any feedback or ideas you want to share with us, you can reach us at contact at cCLn.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, that's all from me today. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you soon.